Last week, we kind of started this Advent series where we looked at this idea of waiting, and that though we all wait in different ways in our lives, that because God has come to us, Emmanuel, in Jesus, there's, we don't have to wait to know God. We can actually know God in the here and now. And that was kind of where I was trying to land us last week. And unfortunately, I didn't record it. It was just, it just now it's evaporated into thin air. Um, but this week, my hope is to continue on this theme. Advent is this, is this idea of, it's kind of just this translated arrival. It's the anticipation of the arrival of someone or something important. Um, so you talk about the advent of modern technology, the advent of um, the, 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 the engine in Detroit. Advent in the, in the, in the church history is the, ad, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the King who's come to, to the earth in Jesus. And so the Advent season is kind of the four weeks of the church calendar leading up to Christmas, where we rehearse the, the arrival of Jesus and the, the anticipation of what he came to bring. Um, and with that, there is, um, there's also the, the longing and the hope of the, of the second Advent, that the world is still not as it should be. In fact, Without the eyes of faith, it, the world is very much similar to the world to which Jesus arrived. It's still a broken world. It's still a sin-filled world, and yet something of the of hopelessness, something of of God, the absence of God, was shattered when Jesus came. And so, because of his life and, and death and resurrection, we are able to. There's there's hope that that is situated in the midst of brokenness. Um. Right? He came to save us, to save all of humanity, to restore creation, to forgive us of our sins, to break the power of death by rising from the dead, sending His Spirit to fill us to where we can call out, Abba, Father. It says in the Bible that we were without hope and without God in the world, but He came and He brought hope and He came to, to make us right, to restore our relationship with God, to be His children a new humanity birthed by the Spirit. And I was talking to a friend this week, and it kind of came, uh, he, he, he was commenting, he's a, he's a pastor in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and he was saying, you know, it's just so important to sit in the, in the waiting and in the struggle. Right? We, we want to skip to Christmas, but man, it's so important to just recognize that there is such a struggle. There's, so, there's, there's suffering, there's waiting, and that God joins us. He's with us in the struggle. He's with us in the waiting. He pointed out the fact that, that it's not an accident that God came into the world through struggle and He left the world in suffering and struggle. I'm kind of using these words simultaneously to be a, a broad tent, right? But um, there's this recent uh, kids' movie called The Star where, you know, it's this animated series about the animals and their life kind of... Uh, kind of with, with Jesus and the, his birth, kind of the, the climax of the movie. But it's like they show the animals, they show Mary pregnant, they pan back to the animals, they pan back to Mary, and she's just happy with a baby in her arms. And, he, and, uh, and it's like, that is not how birth goes. <laughs> right? the, even like, you know, 
I don't know, maybe there's births out there that are really peaceful, but most births are agonizing. There's, there's, a, there's a, a labor, there's an intense groaning of pain to see this baby come into the world. It is not a light and fluffy experience. It is, a, it is an experience of suffering, but there's joy and there's hope on the other side of it. And so, so the arrival of Jesus is at the very beginning, he comes into the world through struggle. All the more in the ancient world where, where pregnancy was much more, uh, was not medicated, there was, it was much more volatile and much more dangerous that our Messiah chose by the, in, the, in the counsel of God to come into the world through the fragility and the pain of childbearing is important. Because it, it shows us that God is not aloof. He's not, he doesn't side skirt suffering. He enters into it and through it into the world. Not only this, but when we think about the situation with Mary and Joseph and and, and the, the stigma around Joseph being betrothed to a woman who's pregnant, a poor woman. There were, there's all sorts of things where when we come at it from a, a kind of a stable family, middle class, back like vantage point, we can miss. When, when they brought Jesus to the temple, they were so poor that they couldn't even offer the standard lambs. They had to offer the, what the poor people, the alternative, the, the, the turtle doves. That was the alternative to the, to the sacrifice of lambs with the firstborn son because they didn't have the means to provide the lambs. All they could do was manage some turtle doves. But God made allowance for that, and he came through the, the poverty of a young woman who, didn't have, who had social stigma around being pregnant out, you know, out of wedlock because he chose to identify himself in weakness. In, in, in fragility. Obviously, we're aware of the way he exited the world through unfathomable suffering. And I want to just sit in this a little bit today and recognize that God is with us in suffering. He's with us in the struggle. He doesn't stand at a distance and seek to explain our suffering, but he joins us in it by himself being thoroughly acquainted with grief, thoroughly acquainted with personal suffering. He can identify with us whatever, whatever point in which our lives experience grief, at any point in which we suffer, whether that's through, through the you know, family-related thing or personal thing where we don't have answers to questions and deep groans and longings, health crises, relational conflicts. There's a really wide scope of things that, that where we experience pain and suffering in our life. But we can rehearse the reality that in the Messiah, God thoroughly is acquainted with grief, with suffering, with loss, with tears, with agony, with lament. These are all, he is, the, he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. His, his, his identity is wrapped up in, in an ability to suffer for and with his, his people that he loves.
So with that, I want to read this passage in Romans 8. Um, up, in, up until this point, Paul is really weaving a, a, a really tight logic of the, the thorough sinfulness of all humanity. That we're all broken. That if you think you're better than somebody else, turns out you do the same things. Mm-hmm. That we're thoroughly broken and sinful and in need of a Savior for all people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is Romans 3. So here we land in Romans 8, which is kind of the the center point of this big book, this big letter that he wrote, Paul, that is, to the Roman church. And so we're going to jump into it here. He talks about, in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That, that, That Jesus has taken the condemnation upon himself. He has substituted himself in the place of us before God and taken the wrath on himself. He died the death that we deserve to die. He, he lived the life that we could or should have lived in our place. And now through his death and resurrection, there's no condemnation. Jesus has wiped it away. There's forgiveness in him. And there is uh, the, the sending of the Spirit that we would actually begin to resemble this life of Jesus. Yet, Paul recognizes there's still suffering. There's still pain. And that's kind of where he jumps in here in in the middle of Romans 8, which I'll read. This is what he writes. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Or another phrase is, through groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn from among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called, Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns us? 
No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Mm -hmm. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from, a, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's a lot. There's a lot here. There's a lot of um, things that could be addressed in this passage. The reason I'm bringing this up is to try to help us situate ourselves. Whatever suffering we've been through, whatever suffering we will go through, there can be a lie that can emerge that feels true when we can't see a way forward. And the lie is that because I'm facing such things, God must be removed from me. That because I'm going through this hardship, God must, I must be doing something wrong. That, 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 that maybe there's a sin in my life that I'm not aware of. Maybe I've, I've offended God, or maybe God's mad at me. Maybe I haven't really repented, and I'm not really reaping the benefits of the life that God promised for me. There's a lie that we can subtly believe in the life of faith, that if I'm going through difficulties or struggles or suffering or agony or pain or grief, that God is at best, waiting for me to get through it, and at worst, is, is, is bringing this upon me on purpose. That, that, that there's something missing in my understanding. He's unfaithful. He is X, Y, Z. This is, this is the place at which the, the enemy wants to come in and, and twist. He wants to come in and, 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 and stoke that lie to where he says in the garden, Did God really say you cannot eat from the tree? No, he, you will not surely die. He's taking the, the, the experience of our lives and twisting it away where, we, where our trust from God is turned away and where, and where our, we're put at the center of, of, of our reference point. Here Paul is addressing this place uh, of, of suffering. And now if we know anything about his life, we know he went through all sorts of, of, of challenges, all sorts of suffering. But even apart from digging into the particulars of, of Paul's experience, he's, he's trying to communicate the point that, that your suffering is not condemnation. Your suffering is not God judging you. God has judged and justified Jesus. And as you believed in Jesus, you are, what he says, more than conquerors. Because you're in the suffering servant. And in your suffering, He is in you. He is with you in these places of question, in these places where you don't have the words. I want to give, um, I want to give us a practical handle on this. 
and it is in the language of lament. Um, lament is is what we do as as believers in Jesus when we go through difficulty, when we don't understand what's going on. It is an act of faith to draw near with my with my complaint to a faithful God who listens and hears. To 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 complain, to bring my 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 pain and confusion, my grief, my complaint to God, and to petition Him to act. So there's three parts in, in a lament. We, you know, a third of the Psalms, if you go to the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms, over a third of them are Psalms of lament, which are Psalms where the psalmist is complaining and he's asking God to change the situation. So there's three parts. There's the complaint, there's the petition, which is the ask, and then there's the vow to, the vow to praise, which says, essentially, even if nothing changes or when this thing changes, I will praise you, and I'll praise you even before it starts. So uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just start. This is the, this is the this is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the from the cross, Psalm 22. Um, here's here's more of the permission, right? Jesus from the cross quotes Psalm 22 to show that the language of lament in the place of suffering is the most legitimate response. If the Son of God quoted one of the most important psalms of lament, we have permission to do so as well. He starts Psalm 22, 1. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? This is the lie, but it, but it feels true, and we have permission to feel it. <clears throat> Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? <clears throat> My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. <clears throat> this is the psalm Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Right, this, is the, this is the word Paul taps into. In Romans 8, groaning. Jesus is lamenting. Jesus is expressing his feeling of abandonment. He's expressing his feeling that God has forsaken him. So we have permission to do the same thing. Any places in life. And it can feel un it can feel bad. It can feel like, oh no, I know I know in my head God hasn't forsaken me, so I can't express how I feel. But if the Son of God did it, we can do it. There's permission to express this complaint. Why are you so far when trouble is near? For the, from So far from the words of my groaning. I would even go so far as to say that um, expressing this groan is um, one of the most faithful things we can do. Um, to, to God, right? This, this, this groan. Three times in Romans 8, Paul talks about groaning. He says, first he says, creation is groaning. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. God had, God had subjected creation. 
sin and, and, and the cancer of, of, of sin entered into God's good creation in the, in the, in the, at the fall, at the very um, beginning. And, and since that point, he says, creation has been groaning. Ah, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the earthquake or the, the, the storm. It's the, it's the groaning of creation to be redeemed from bondage to decay. Where in, in this created order, things fall apart. Trees fall down. How, houses break down. Things are not permanent. Prone to decay. Now, from a naturalistic point of view, we could say, let's just, that's actually the life cycle. It's supposed to be that way. But in God's original design, things were built to last. Creation is not going to be wiped out. Creation is going to be renewed with permanence. And our bodies in, in the new creation will be renewed with permanence. Not corruptible, not, not prone to decay. So he says creation's groaning. And then it says creation's groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. This is, this is a partial fulfillment in what Jesus has done in, in giving us his spirit in, of adoption. But it's also looking for the, the day of Christ's return where the sons of God will be fully realized as, as uh, uh, under the reign of God, dwelling with God in the new creation. Then it says, after creation groans, it says, we also groan. Verse 23, not, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, for that fulfillment piece. Right? Jesus says in uh, Mark 2, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. But we, but we also know there's this already and not yet. There's much to be fulfilled. There's a, there's a hope that we're still longing for that we can't see yet. And we groan inwardly. There's a, um, a famous um, book on lament called Lament for a Son. This theologian named Nicholas Wolterstorff his son was 26 years old and um, died in a tragic skiing accident and uh, had all the world before him. And, and this, this man is now forced to wrestle through stuff he's always, he knew forever, but now he had to actually walk through it himself. I want to read a quote from, um, from this book. He says, Standing on a hill in Galilee, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessings to those who mourn. Cheers to those who weep. Hail to those whose eyes are filled with tears. Hats off to those who suffer. Bottoms up to the grieving. How strange. How incredibly strange. Who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. The mourners are aching visionaries. He's putting language to the expression of, of grief and the expression of groaning that we, that we feel. And he's putting it in perspective. And he's saying, when we mourn, when we grieve, when we groan, we're actually... It's, it's, it's actually saying that things are not how they're supposed to be. We're longing in the deepest parts of our souls for the redemption of all things, which God has promised. 
We're aching for the vision that's captured us, however vaguely, for, for a new creation. And in its absence, we groan. We wait eagerly. Right? We're not without hope and without God in the world, but even still, we groan. And then he says in verse 26, in the same way, you know, we wait patiently for what we hope for but do not see. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through groanings too deep for words or, for, or through wordless groans. And here it's like you, we can't escape the goodness of God. Okay, so we're lamenting. We're pouring out our praise. But, but maybe, maybe you get to a point where you're like, I don't even know what to say. I, don't have, I have no more words. I can't even articulate the groan in my heart. And I'm tempted to just withdraw from it all. Even when, even when you're in that place, the Spirit is still praying for you. He's groaning for you. You don't even have a groan left in your body. But the Spirit's like, no, 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 I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm still groaning for your redemption. I'm still groaning for, for your formation. I'm still groaning for the day when you will see the face of Jesus. And all of it will be worth it. That God's actually working in us. In these places of pain. In these places of, of suffering. In these places of frustration. God's actually working. His Spirit's interceding that we would be conformed to the image of the Son, that we would be shaped by the will of God to know that He's with us in this place of pain and He's working it. He's using it. He didn't, he didn't cause it. He's not intending it for your destruction, but He's using it. In this, in this, um, in this place, there's this quote from C.S. Lewis, his book, The Great Divorce, that I think is really um, beautiful. So in this book, Lewis is essentially um, kind of playing with the idea of eternity in a kind of a fantasy world. He's not saying this is exactly how it is, but he's saying kind of in the Chronicles of Narnia-esque feel, he's saying this is kind of, imagine if it was like this. And he says, uh, so, so this, this um, what appears to be this young man is in heaven and he's talking to this to this heavenly being who happens to be George MacDonald, this famous English poet. And, and the man is telling him kind of what heaven is like and what hell is like and what eternity is like. And he says, it's something like this. Both, both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. Not only this valley, but all this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight of that town, which is hell, but all their life on earth too will, be, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, quote, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasures, they say, let us have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate 
even the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will be speaking truly. What's happening in this scene is he's recognizing that our perception of, of the fact that God is with us in the place of pain and suffering changes everything. And it actually works backwards to turn even the worst things that happen in our life. Recognizing that if God's been with us in it, then it's not all bad. Even if it's evil, God can turn evil into good because he's redeeming all things. And likewise, for those who, whose hearts are hardened and who, who are unwilling to acknowledge the grace and goodness of God, even the good things in life can't help but be tainted, can't help but be, be, um, be seen as a, as, a, as, a, as a loss or contaminated by the bitterness in the heart. So the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. What I'm getting at is that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is interceding for you, if He is after the fullness of your heart, not even, not even the, the life that, that we are picturing for ourselves, but the fullness of our, of our hearts, He is for us and He will not let go. That's where He gets at in verse 32. What then shall we say? in response to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Does that mean that, that in my life I can just expect God to give me all things? No, that's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is all things being the, the completion of the longings of your heart. That all the things that you feel are missing, that all the things that you feel are, are absent in the goodness of your, of, of your desires, He will give you all those things. There will be a completion. There will be a day when, when everything that we long for from the deepest places of our hearts will be met and we'll see that it's actually God Himself. We'll see that the things we thought we wanted, they actually pointed us to the God who made us. And so because of this, 
nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He's just kind of listing all the things, these categories of pain and suffering and places where we would cry out, God, God, I feel forsaken. God, what's happening? Where are you? He's saying that the love of God is so present to you there. Because if the place that God poured out his, his presence was in the suffering of the cross, if he dwells in, in weakness, then he will dwell in you. He will be with you. He, his love will be present to you, even in the place of darkness. Even in the place of pain, nakedness, danger, sword, hardship, persecution. All the things that we fear. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Man, what, what a, a total flipping. It's a, it's a total subversion of the way of the world. He's saying that in Hardship in loss, in places of pain, in sword, in places of war, in frustration, in all these things that we experience as the underbelly of our existence. You're more than a conqueror. We use that sometimes to, to kind of rally around the, like, the strength of our, of our existence. I'm more than a conqueror. But what he's saying here is like, actually, no, no. Your, your conquering is through the love of God that meets you in your weakness and in the places of your greatest pain. That's where you conquer. Because his love is present to you there at the lowest low. If, if nothing, if even those things can't separate you from the love of God, then, then nothing can. That's where, he, that's where he lands this passage. I'm convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a, um, a song I think it's called You Remain. But it has this line in it that has stuck with it's just, It's really convicting. And it says that when I see your face, I wish I'd given more away. So don't let me waste a trial. And don't let me miss a chance to praise. Mm-hmm. That when we see the face of God, when we see Jesus... And all the, all the things that we worried about, all the things that we stressed about, all the things that, that gripped our hearts with frustration and, and agony, all the groanings, we'll see that they were ultimately pointing to our longing for God himself and that he was with us through all of it. And he has been faithful. That even when we didn't have any words to say, even when our hearts were totally hardened, he was interceding for us. That's why he lands in the middle here. 
he says, those he predestined, he also called. Even before that, verse 29, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's like, we think is before you even knew anything of God, he foreknew you. You were in his heart before you were created. And he, pre, he has a destiny for you. And he determined that destiny in advance. So he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, guess what? The son suffered. And if you're going to be formed into the image of the son in a broken world, we walk the way of, of the lamb. And we experience suffering too. But when we see that, just like Jesus was in communion with the father in the place of suffering, let out his cry, but knew that God was ultimately going to win the day. We can walk through great pain, great, great struggle, great inner turmoil, and know that even yet God is with us. Even yet, even if we feel detached, we feel alone, we feel all these things, that's, we can express those feelings, but know that God is greater than our feelings. He's more faithful than our feelings. He's better than our, than our worst that we can think about Him. And nothing can separate us from his love. This isn't something that we have to do. This is something that he has done for us. And it's something that he's promised to us. Suffering doesn't separate us from Christ, but it actually can carry us along toward our ultimate goal of knowing the fullness of who God is. So I want to um, create some time for us to bring to God um, our, our groan, our pain, our frustration, our disbelief, our apathy, mm-hmm. our accusation against him or against anybody else. I want to give us permission to lament, permission to complain, permission to, 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 to groan. Um, you know, it struck me about, I was, I was thinking about this as it, as it relates to um, childbearing, is that I've never had the baby, to be honest, but I have seen babies born, and I I know that there is something past self-control, right? There's something beyond your ability to contain yourself, and and I, I and, and with that I also recognize that in an environment like this, it's like, well, gosh, there's people in the room, I can't just like totally let it out, and so it's just like I'm I'm aware of that, I, I feel that like. But there is a place in God beyond our apprehension, beyond our restraint. A groaning that is deep in our souls that, um, that God is aware of, that God hears. And he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed to call you his beloved, even in the place of your deepest groan. Jesus himself felt and and identifies with you in your deepest groaning. 
And so I want to invite God into that place in our, in our hearts um, with the framework, complaint, petition, and vow to praise. That is, here's where I'm at, God. Here's what I'm asking. Would you, would you, would you come in this place? And then, uh, nevertheless, I will yet praise you. Don't let me miss a chance to praise you, even in this place of pain, even in this difficulty, even in, and I'll make room for this, like even in the place of apathy. Like it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm in pain and I, and I really care. It's that I don't care. And I don't even know how to care. But I am, I'm hearing that your spirit cares and is interceding for me when I don't even have any words left. I don't even want to pray. The Spirit's still praying for you. And so, just to, just to create a moment for the Holy Spirit to come in, for us to express our, our groans to the Lord. And, um, and then, so we'll do that for a, a couple minutes, and then I'll get back up.